Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Happy to have you back. Uh, School is in session. Back to school. Word Balloon 101. Word Balloon University. uh, Welcome. That's right. As we uh, pass the ivy-covered walls of uh, our various buildings here at Word Balloon University, uh, today it's all about film appreciation. That's the easy class. That's the one to boost up your GPA. You know, you always have to do underwater basket weaving or, you know, some kind of uh, course. Don't do weather. Weather is deceptive. That's a science class. I didn't realize that. I'm like, fine, you know, you get a, dressed up in a polyester jacket, you point at a map, you talk about, you know, clouds. How hard is that? It was really hard. So, but film appreciation is really good. This is a great year, uh, 2018, because 50 years ago, 1968, there were a ton of really, really good movies that happened 50 years ago. And in fact, even earlier this year, we uh, did an episode about uh, the great planet of the apes. We had Dana Gould on, great ape expert, and uh, we talked about his adaptation of Rod Serling's original screenplay for Planet of the Apes. That book, if it's not coming out this week, then it's the following week. But I know that on his podcast, Dana has already announced signings in L.A., where uh, he'll be uh, with the Boom Studios book, uh, adapting Rod Serling's original screenplay. And uh, Dana has turned it into a graphic novel. Pretty neat stuff. Okay, that was the last episode, and a few months ago on Word Balloon. But uh, today... We're talking about another movie that's celebrating the 50th anniversary. Ladies and gentlemen, Yellow Submarine. And I know this isn't the Yellow Submarine song, but this is one of the songs featured in the movie. And uh, Titan Books has decided to adapt Yellow Submarine into a graphic novel, which is a great idea because, of course, the real star of that movie is the Beatles' music. The Beatles themselves, they don't even voice their characters in that animated movie. I'm sure a lot of you already know that. But there's a lot of facts about the movie you may not know. And uh, they picked a great artist-writer to adapt Yellow Submarine. And that's the great Bill Morrison. The great Bill Morrison, who's been with Futurama for years as their art director, goes back with Matt Groening uh, to the beginnings of uh, Bongo Publications and The Simpsons and was responsible for running Bongo for many years. Simpsons Comics, Bart Simpson Comics, Futurama Comics. uh, They were even publishing uh, SpongeBob for a while. Well, we got the bad news a couple weeks ago that Bongo uh, is no longer going to be publishing comics, and Bill kind of explains. I thought the whole operation was shutting down, but just the comics division, unfortunately. Bill's okay. He, in fact, is now the editor-in-chief of Mad Magazine, and we have a nice uh, bit of a discussion about that. But the main focus is is about his uh, graphic novel for uh, Yellow Submarine, and it's terrific. It's excellent. Um, not only was uh, it a great movie, and like I started to say, the music was the star of the movie, but the animation and the choices of design were very reflective of the times. Uh, you know, it's easy to mistake uh, what was going on in the animation for Peter Max, but it wasn't Peter Max who was the designer for this. Uh, also, Monty Python fans might see a similarity if you see the movie, and even the art that uh, Bill does to recreate the look and feel of the movie in the graphic novel. You might think of Terry Gilliam and his animation for Monty Python. Well, this predated that, at least uh, his uh, Monty Python work. Gilliam was already doing animation, and maybe that did also partially inspire some of the looks. But really, the designer wasn't even British. How about that? Did you know that one of the great romance novel authors of the 1970s was one of the writers of Yellow Submarine? 
No? Well, you're going to find out in this course of film appreciation. Bill Morrison talking about his adaptation of Yellow Submarine for Titan Books. It's out now. Check it out. It's amazing if you're a Beatles fan. It's also amazing if you're just an art appreciation person. This could have been an art appreciation course. Uh, But uh, we talk about that. We also talk about his work on shows like The Simpsons, Futurama, and even the new Matt Groening animated series for Netflix, Disenchantment. I've already seen the first episode. It's fantastic. And uh, that's going to be a fun 13 episodes to get through. It's the same kind of uh, Simpsons and Futurama humor that you love in a whole brand new series. And it gets to be even a little raunchier than I think Fox uh, would allow the Simpsons and Futurama to be. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy today's conversation. Bill Morrison, the great Bill Morrison, for the first time on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Hey, thanks a lot, League, for your support. It's coming up to the end of the month, and uh, I really appreciate these uh, Word Balloon subscribers via Patreon. You are the League of Word Balloon listeners. There are a few new uh, additions to the League. I thank you. Uh, You'll find your capes in your locker rooms and your respective domino masks and cowls if you choose them. Word Balloon is free. It'll always be free. But if you like what I do here and want to help out the cause, you can subscribe to Word Balloon via Patreon if you go to patreon.com slash wordballoon or go to wordballoon.com and click on the Patreon ad. You know, Patreon was created by the music band Poplamus, and uh, earlier this year, they put out a great cover of, uh, I can't even remember the name of the stupid 90s song or early 2000s song, but I like it so much better than the pop version of it. Uh, And uh, yeah, Jack Connie from... uh, Pomplamus is the guy that created Patreon, so I thank him and I thank you for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Man, I didn't even know about this book that Bill Morrison apparently did for Dark Horse called uh, Dead Vengeance. It sounds great. Uh, 1940, a phony body is on exhibit on a, in a carnival sideshow and it suddenly springs to life and uh, shambles away. Not so phony after all. Uh, he is John Doe, radio commentator and arch enemy of Detroit's nor- notorious Purple Gang. But why did he disappear in 1930? So an interesting story, and I, I think I'm going to have to check this out and pick it up from in-stock trades. The hardcover is 42% off, $11.59. You can also get Yellow Submarine from Titan. It is out now, and uh, that's on sale for 25% off, $22.49. I'm telling you, it's incredible. And uh, Bill did a hell of a job on it, and you'll hear about it in this interview. He's also part of Creepy Comics Trade Paperback Volume 1. This was a fantastic modern homage to uh, the new Dark Horse uh, run of Creepy. It was very, very good. If you missed it, I'm telling you, great stories, great horror, tremendous art, funny stories as well. Even a little controversy, which I love. But uh, Bill is among uh, the writers that contributed. Our buddy Hilary Barta, also part of this. Michael Kaluta, also part of this collection. Angelo Torres, one of the original creepy artists, also one of the people involved. Really great. Joe R. Lansdale, the wonderful writer. Doug Munch is in there. Uh, really, really cool. Creepy Comics, trade paperback volume one, 42% off, including Bill Morrison, $11.59 from InStockTrades.com. Check it out. Great books, great prices, InStockTrades.com. All right. Without further ado, let's get into our conversation now with Bill Morrison. We're talking Yellow Submarine on today's Word Balloon. Bill Morrison, welcome to Word Balloon. It's truly a pleasure to talk to you, man. I've enjoyed your years uh, hosting the Eisners, and I know, and, and certainly I know your, your background as well. 
uh, working with uh, Matt Groening and uh, uh, Futurama. And did you work on The Simpsons prior to Futurama? Well, I I worked. Uh, I've done a little bit of work on the TV show, just random things here and there, sort of at Matt's request. Okay. And uh, and I was the art director on Futurama, so that was yes. Um, that was really my main foray into into animation. I did also work on the Simpsons movie a bit. I did oh, a cool. few things on the movie. All right, yeah. excellent. Yeah, we'll get into that in your your relationship with Matt. But I know uh, at the top of the list, uh, you're here to talk about the Yellow Submarine adaptation for Titan. I can't believe it's been 50 years since the animated movie. That's insane. I know. And it, amazingly, I, I'm probably the person to ask about this because I've had to watch it so many times. Well, I, you know, I <laughs> but of, it really holds up. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's, still, it's still a fun movie. Well, well, two things. One, first of all, because I, I, we will get into the comic, what I love about it is it reminds me your presentation of that if you have the Spinal Tap DVD, if people know, there's like literally uh, about almost 90 minutes, maybe maybe an hour and 10 minutes of footage that wasn't in the film. And it's like literally watching a second film that it was just unused footage that they used simultaneously. And in your case with Yellow Submarine, it's like, you know, um, a different camera angle. Because we get all the we get all the great funny bits and stuff, but obviously you know because a comic and a comic can do things that a movie can't. Um, it's all familiar, but it's also from different angles and and you know it's it's a different presentation. So it's almost like you went back fifty years and uh, snuck in on the animation and again brought things into a, a different perspective. Well, thank you. That's uh, I, have, I haven't thought of it that way, but that's that, that's cool. I like that. Well, you know, now as an animation expert, as you say, well, and I, and I don't know, were you, have you, did you delve into the history of the film itself in terms of knowing who, who did what and everything? I was surprised to learn that, and I didn't remember that it was a King Features animated film, and, and I'd forgotten that King Features also did that Beatles Saturday morning cartoon as well. Yeah, and that's how the whole thing came about, Uh you know, King Features, Al Brodax, who was the uh, head of King Features, had the rights to do a Beatles feature. Um, and the way I heard it, the Beatles wanted to, they were kind of done with movie making. And they had a contract that they had to fulfill. So they wanted to just sort of bring that to a close. And um, so the original proposal was for him to do a Beatles full-length feature that was based on the animated Saturday morning cartoon show. And uh, they went to the, the uh, studio in, uh, in London that was, um, that had been doing the Beatles cartoon and they had no interest at all in doing it in that style. They were kind of sick of it. And, you know, the Beatles had moved on and styles had moved on by 1967 you know, it was just, they just thought that was a dumb idea. Um, but when it was proposed to, to just take it in a different psychedelic direction, uh, everybody got really excited about it. Um, but Al Brodax was still the guy involved, you know. So you look at those two um, styles and you think, that you know, they can't be the same company <laughs> producing that. But amazingly, it was. And I was always surprised because the, as you say, styles had changed. 
And um, I always thought that as a kid and just, you know, just surfacely being aware of artists like Peter Max, it, it had that kind of Peter Max feel to it. And I was surprised to learn that actually the designer was a German man, Heinz Edelman. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And what, you know, had, had you been aware of his work before? And I mean, uh, what, you know, the challenge of, because what Edelman brought to the film, and it was really interesting, I was watching some old uh, interviews with the director and, and Edelman, and he, even then, was saying he wanted to change up the look of the animation every five or seven minutes or so, so people wouldn't get bored. And I remember hearing the same kind of thing from the people that made the heavy metal animated movie. Uh, and, mm. and yeah, so like studying that, because again, there are so many different styles. It's, it's literally like an animated collage of, you know, so many styles and there's, you can almost see, and again, this is pre Monty Python, but there's that Terry Gilliam kind of feel to the animation in a lot of sections as well. And that's gotta be a hell of a challenge for you to draw all those different styles or was it? Um, well, a lot of the style change took place during the, uh, the musical segments. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, for example, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is very different from the rest of the film. Um, you know, there's a lot of rotoscoping, and it's it's very watercolor washy. Uh, and, but because of the fact that I was not able to use the lyrics to the songs in the, in the graphic novel... Um, a lot of that isn't really in there in the book. So um, I I chose to kind of stick to the main style of the film, just the the, uh, the general animated look. Although in some of the backgrounds, uh, you know, the Beatles don't really change for the most part during right. the non-song parts of the story or of the film. Um, they pretty much stay on the same model. But, um, you know, we did get a little different with the backgrounds. Yeah. Um, not so much the collage aspect. Uh, and, you know, the there's some parts of the film where it's very photographic. Yes. Um, and uh, I chose not to really go there. Um, I chose to keep it a little more consistent because I feel like in a film that really works. But in a, a graphic novel, it might be kind of confusing when you see, you know, you start to sort of get out of your head a little bit and start thinking, Oh, is there a different artist here now? Um, so yeah, I just didn't really go that way as much. I kept the, the look pretty consistent. Agreed. But yeah, I kind of thought in a couple areas, especially when they're still on earth and when Fred is still, uh, collecting the Beatles to, uh, get them to help him come back to Pepperland and everything. It seemed like you, you know, you did kind of lay in a couple like photographs here and there. And, and again, it just, it, it, like I said, it felt like the movie, but it's almost like you had your own little camera unit unit and, and you were shooting it like kind of while they were, it reminded like the Spanish Dracula was being made at the same time as the, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> stuff like that. But no man. Well, hey, one thing I, one well, thing I, yeah, please. I was just going to add one thing I did do is, um, with the page and the panel design with the layout of the thing, I tried to, um, capture a mood. So, for example, if you look at the scene that takes place in Liverpool with Ringo and you know Fred recruiting Ringo uh, to you know help him on his uh, mission, it's very the panel layouts are very straight. Uh, you know they're just rectangular. They're kind of traditional comic strip 
sort of panels. Um, and then as you get into Pepperland, things are a more, more uh, organic and uh, psychedelic. So I did try to capture different moods with the way that the pages were laid out. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think you achieved that as well. Was this fun and like, absolutely, I want to do this. And then when you got into it, how I, I, I mean, this, this is like over a hundred pages. I mean, how, how long did it take you to do this? Because I would think you, you were, you're very faithful to Heinz Edelman's designs for the Beatles and Pepperland and the blue minis and glove and the like, but, uh, you know, it was that fun or did it kind of become a chore? Well, it was, it was a lot of fun. I think that the chore came in, you know, when you get up to about page 57 <laughs> and you've, you've kind of tried every type of page layout you can think of and you don't want to repeat yourself. Uh, it did get a little bit challenging. It's like, nah, I've already done that. I, you know, I got to come up with something different. Uh, and I've never done uh, a graphic novel of this length. Um, so, you know, you think about, oh, 96 pages. That, you know, that doesn't sound like that many. Oh, there's my cat. Oh, hello. Uh, <laughs> What's your cat's name? I was going to say, it's either Ziggy. a kid or a pet. Ziggy. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Um, oh, man. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Big Bowie fan here. Attaboy. I, oh, uh, great loss, man. Uh, we can talk about yeah, Black Star at the end of the at the end of the conversation. Oh yeah, what a great way to go! Yeah, at least, thank I, God. Yeah, just the timing too. I mean, it's almost yeah. like he he timed his own death, you know, totally, to totally. to coincide with the release of the album. No question. Uh, you know, and just oh, so emotional. Can I anyway? Yeah, real, real fast, real fast, real fast. Bowie aside, uh, I worked for a classic rock station when Black Star came out, and I'm like. Uh, why aren't we playing this? The, and they're like, the program director's like, well, you know, we stick to the old stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't know if this is classic rock. I'm like, Bowie is always classic rock. And I'm like, you're nuts. And then, of course, he died. And then all of a sudden, we started playing stuff from Black Star. I'm like, you guys are idiots. So I wasn't long for that station. <laughs> but whatever. So back to Pepperland and back, right. to, back to Sergeant Pepper. The, uh, yeah, so anyway, it was, you know, it, it was challenging towards the end to not repeat myself, you know, sure. to kind of keep it fresh and come up with interesting designs that kept the story moving. It, well, dude, I'm telling you, you definitely captured the look of the film. Um, are they, did you have to get this vetted? Who owns, who owns the IP for yellow submarine? And I know uh, my friend, uh, Sal Abinati represents Alex Ross and Alex recently did these incredible Beatles portfolios Oh yeah, and, I know Sal and, and Alex. There you go, and uh, and yeah, and you know Sal's like, hey, you know, I had, had to get obviously uh, Ringo and Paul, but also George's estate and John's estate as well. So did, for instance, first of all, did the Beatles estates have to approve the the, the look of the uh, the book? Yeah, and this is all through Apple. Uh, okay, and uh, Alex is working through Apple as well. Yes. So um, everything we do. Uh, is vetted by them. It's all licensed and sanctioned, and um, and this is actually the, only the third official Beatles book that's ever been done. You Beatles know, that's, comic that's, book? That's, no, just that book in general. Um, amazingly, you know, of all the hundreds of Beatles books there are out there, they're all unauthorized and unlicensed. I had no idea. Um, wow. 
Yeah, because you can do that. I mean, the Beatles were public figures, and you can write a book about them, and you don't have to, you know, get a license to do that. Uh, but this is a little bit different. And so um, the only other ones were there was a, a Yellow Submarine Kids book that was officially sanctioned by Apple and um, a Beatles anthology book. So this is only the third one. That's insane. Wasn't there a Be- but yeah? Wasn't there also a uh, I didn't Dell do a Beatles comic book back in the day? Yes. And was yeah, and, was that uh, the was that an adaptation of Yellow Submarine or was it something different? It was. It was. Uh, it was an official adaptation, and uh, I'm I'm sure it was licensed, but uh, you know, it wasn't considered a book. It was a, I guess, a 48 page comic book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it actually had to be produced before the film was done. So it doesn't always follow the movie uh, or the story completely. It's it's a little weird. You know, if you're reading it fresh and have never seen the film, it works fine. But if you've seen the film and then you read the comic book, you're like, what the hell? Because <laughs> um, it just goes off in these areas. You know, it's based on things that they were maybe going to put into the movie, like early mm-hmm. versions of the script and, and uh, you know, characters that never made it into the film are in there. Wow. Uh, so it's weird. Yeah. But, um, but, but yeah, that was the original official, uh, adaptation of the film. Well, and, and a couple of things, first of all, because you and I know the difference, but younger uh, listeners may not realize that when we say Apple films, uh, we're talking about the Beatles company, Apple, not, uh, you know, uh, Apple, Apple, of course. Yes. So there's that. Right. Yeah. Sorry about that. Not that, at all. That was confusing. Oh, no, not, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> again, again, if you're over forty, I think you know the difference. But if you're under forty, you may not. And uh, the other yeah, thing, people are like, "What the hell is what, what the hell does a computer company have to do with the Beatles?" Yeah, Steve Jobs owns yellow owned a yellow submarine. What the hell's going on? Um, but and then also, you mentioned the story differences, and I always found this interesting. And only older listeners might be aware of this name, but I know Lee Minoff wrote the original story. But I again watching the documentary, I heard that they brought in uh, among the writers to punch up the script Eric Siegel, and you might go, hey, "Who the right. hell's that?" But if again, if you're old enough, Eric Siegel also wrote Love Story, the book, the novel, and which was a huge bestseller again for younger listeners, and uh, also inspired the Ryan O'Neill, Ali McGraw blockbuster film that was like the shock hit of if it was wasn't seventy, it was seventy one. When that came out, and it's pretty crazy yeah. that he also he also had a hand in writing uh, Yellow Submarine. So that's kind of crazy. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, Mario Puzo. Yes, um, <laughs> who wrote The Godfather had a hand in the Superman movie. Exactly, absolutely, man. I know that was a, that was a big shock when I when I learned that, and that was pretty crazy. And then also, apparently, they brought in this guy, uh, or, or Roger. And I'm, I'm going to get his last name wrong because, of course, I wrote this like last night at like two in the morning or whatever. But um, a guy that used to work with Paul's brother, Mike McCartney, in a in a band to kind of make it sound more Liverpudlian and kind of more you know Beatles dialect. Because the other ir- ironic thing is, again, that some people may not know, the Beatles don't actually voice the cartoon; it's not their voices. Right. And they got those actors. Yeah, they come in. Like they them. come in at the end. Yes, uh, but but yeah, it's all voice actors. 
Um, as was the animated show. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> they had a different cast for this one. Um, and Paul Freese was one of the voices on the animated show or the, you know, the Saturday morning cartoon yep. show. Yep. Um, and people know his voice from, you know, a bazillion animated cartoons, but he was very good at doing the, the Liverpudlian brogue. Yeah. Those are fun cartoons. I, I, you know, it sounds like you enjoyed them as well. I, I saw them probably in second run as like, you know, weekday afternoon cartoons. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, did you, did you watch those as a kid, the Saturday morning cartoons? Oh yeah. I mean, that was sort of my version of the Beatles. Sure. You know, I have two, two older sisters and an older brother and they were listening to Beatles records from the moment they came out. And, you know, we always had Beatles music, but I was sort of more interested in the animated version. So, sure. you know, I'd be sitting there in front of the TV on Saturday morning and, you know, if eight days a week was the title of the, uh, you know, the current episode, that was my introdu- introduction to it <laughs> uh, rather than the album. Absolutely. I also, uh, I also, but the first album I ever owned was the Chipmunks sing the Beatles hits. Hilarious. And uh, so that was, you know, I was listening to the Chipmunks version while my siblings were <laughs> listening to the original. <laughs> <laughs> and also those animated uh, Saturday morning shows, they pretty much cloned those for the Osmonds later on. And then also uh, the other one that I remember really well was the Jackson 5 cartoon. And they essentially oh, yeah. this, exactly just like the Beatles cartoons were. Yeah, they kind of had the same moves during the the uh, musical numbers and everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dude, this is a great book. And it's, uh, I think, uh, the kind of thing that not only comic book fans will find intriguing, because, again, the art is amazing. And it's just got that great feel of the movie and that, you know, again, for lack of a better word, that just the pastiche and the, the designs of the characters, the blue meanies look great, the glove looks great, everyone. And, of course, the Beatles themselves. And it's just this crazy, fun story. But also, so comic book fans will enjoy it. And then, of course, Beatles fans will enjoy it, too. And it's kind of fun. I was reading along with watching the animated film. And, yeah, man, the the dialogue's right there. And it's, you know, again, it's a different presentation. But, uh, you know, from the story standpoint, again, as you said, you couldn't use the lyrics. I'm sure that would have made it cost that much more money to also, you know, have those and also make it a lot longer uh, graphic novel as well. Yeah, it probably would have been uh, maybe not quite twice as long, but, you know, pretty close. Sure. Absolutely, man. What are your favorite songs from the soundtrack, the the Beatles songs? I think my all-time favorite is Hey Bulldog. Me too. <laughs> um, I don't know, something about that song. It wasn't their biggest hit, but there's just so much... You can just tell they're having a blast recording it. You know, there's it's just so much fun, and I love the sort of pounding keyboard rhythm. And uh, I'm a drummer, so I've always liked strong rhythm. I used to be a and, drummer as uh, well. Yes. Yeah, so I don't know. That one always jumps out at me. Um, but uh, God, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and sure. All You Need Is Love. All You Need Is Love. That that uh, whole segment is fantastic. I love that one. Sure. Um, God, I mean, it's it's weird because the when you're reading the book, I don't know if you experienced this, but um, you know we know these songs so well that you sort of hear them in your head while you're reading the book, even though 
the the segments aren't really there. I mean, that music is, for me at least, it's just always playing while I'm looking at it. Agreed. Well, again, because this really was a music video before music videos. And, um, you know, it was always on television. And uh, it's, again, watching the documentary about the making of it, even the Beatles themselves seem surprised that the movie held up as well as it did and that so many generations later of us you know, watched it as, you know, again, I was, I think, four, probably three or four when the movie came out in 68. And uh, I, I, my exposure to it really was on network television or syndicated television watching the movie version. And, uh, yeah, you, you couldn't help but uh, associate the songs with the look of the animated film. And it all fits because it's kind of it's a weird uh, Beatles album because it's really half of the movie soundtrack all the background music that George Martin made. And and that was also playing in my head as I was reading the gla- the graphic novel. But, uh, yeah, and there's only, like, four new Beatles songs that were made for the Yellow Submarine album. And it wasn't a big-selling uh, album because of that. I think people felt kind of gypped that, you know, they were only getting four four Beatles songs on there. But, but again, those songs, only a Northern song, uh, all you need is love, Hey Bulldog, as you say. I love Hey Bulldog. And it's... That was really interesting. There's a great YouTube about the making of the Hey Bulldog video because it was, like, I guess, also made at the same time that they were uh, making a Lady Madonna promotional film. And they really took the Hey Bulldog video and put it with Lady Madonna. And it kind of fits because, again, it had that pounding piano uh, and, and a little bit of this, the same kind of backtracking. But uh, it was kind of later that they reassembled the footage properly and fit it with Hey Bulldog. And it really is, like, one of the best Beatle performances on that promotional video, and, of course, the song itself. It's You're right, it's a forgotten Beatles classic, and I really think in the last 10 or 15 years or so, it's been rediscovered, and, you know, the Foo Fighters love that song, and uh, so many other bands, you know, perform- like, of all the Beatles songs, that's the one they play. So, yeah, I'm with you on Hey Bulldog, definitely. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'll have to check that out. I, I haven't heard of that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely, man. No, this is a must for Beatles fans and uh, also for people who appreciate really ambitious art. And you, you captured the look of the uh, the cartoon quite well, and it's, uh, it's, it's a great companion if you already have Yellow Submarine. Yellow Submarine also on Amazon Prime currently. I'm aware of that. So uh, it was... Uh, yeah. I didn't have to pull out my DVD. I was able to... Uh, <laughs> watch it on Amazon Prime and uh, and again like listen to the movie while I was reading the book it was very very neat so well somebody said uh, somebody gave me a great line which I like to use which is you can't flip through a movie right um, so so it's a good it's a good book to you know just have on your shelf you could pull it down and go through it and um, sort of relive the movie without going to the trouble of you know, getting out your DVD and putting it on, sitting down, and watching it. Is it coming out as a soft cover or a hard cover or both? It's a hard, it's a hard cover. Um, there, I don't know. There may be plans to do a soft cover version, but uh, yeah, initially the release is hard cover. When is it uh, coming out? Uh, it actually drops on August 28th. So um, just about a week from now. Fantastic. This will be out before uh, the yeah. 28th, so don't worry about that. Is there any sort of forward or anything from Beatle people? No, we just jump right into it. Okay. Uh, there is there is some supplemental material, some sketches, 
um, you know, original, uh, page thumbnail layouts in the back and, um, you know, rough pencils and things like that. But, uh, yeah, no forward just, just goes right into the graphic novel. Okay. And was it, uh, again, was it, was it a challenge getting the designs for you? Uh, not for me. I, for some reason, I always had an easy time at matching styles, uh, you know, things that have been pre-established in a film or TV show like The Simpsons or Disney. I did a lot of uh, Disney posters and then all my years on The Simpsons and Futurama, uh, I guess, sort of, sort of prepared me for this. Cool. So I have a pretty easy time of looking at a uh, style that's been established and then sort of picking it up. I mean, it always helps to have a lot of reference. So, um, you know, I pulled lots of screenshots and, um, you know, I've got books on Yellow Submarine. So you find a, uh, you know, publicity still or shot like that to go from, to spring off from. Um, and it's it's not too difficult. Well, honestly, you did a great job. And uh, I, again, I think uh, Beatle fans and Anyone who appreciates great comic book art is going to really enjoy this and also find it to be a great departure from uh, your work with, uh, you know, The Simpsons and Futurama and Bongo and everything. Let's get into your uh, your relationship with Matt Groening. How did that start? Well, boy, that goes way back to the 80s, uh, pre-Simpsons. Um, my first job in Hollywood, I worked for a uh, kind of a boutique ad agency in Hollywood that specialized in movie posters, movie posters and uh, general movie advertising, TV guide ads and things like that. Okay. And and the guy who owned it, his wife had sort of a little side uh, greeting card company. And Matt used to come in and he, he wrote copy for greeting cards. And he also wrote uh, you know those like the taglines for movie posters. Oh, funny! Um, any any famous so movies? I, yeah, that you that you did back then or whatever. Well, there's one that's uh, it was it's really sort of my first collaboration with Matt. Uh, it was um, a movie called Blood Diner. <laughs> I and, remember that exactly? <laughs> yeah, it, it was just you know like a schlocky uh, '80s horror movie. Sure. And I guess Matt had written a tagline for another film. It was actually uh, a more, a better known film, uh, Return of the Living Dead, which is, you know, the classic punk rock zombie film. Yep. Um, so, so Matt had written this tagline that didn't get used, which was, first they meet you, then they want to eat you. <laughs> and I guess from what I heard, they recycled that for the Blood Diner poster and I did the art for the poster for blood diner. Um, so it was sort of, you know, in a weird way, our first collaboration together. Um, but I used to see Matt in the hallways, you know, he'd come in, he was a freelancer. I, I, you know, was a staff member, but every so often I'd see him. Uh, and then when the Simpsons started, I had moved on to a different studio and, uh, my friend Millie, who was sort of the, uh, conduit to Matt, she was a friend of Matt and brought him in initially on these movie poster projects. Um, she was working with him again on uh, The Simpsons in in the realm of merchandising. So Matt had brought her in to sort of be his liaison to Fox and uh, do approvals for, 
you know, images that would appear on T-shirts and video games and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so when there was that whole big boom of, you know, that big explosion of Simpsons merchandise when the show started back in 1990, uh, she was looking for artists to, um, you know, just pitch in and, and help out with all the stuff that was coming out. Um, so she called me up, asked me if I was interested. And uh, it, it it was a weird time because she actually said these words to me. She said, you know, Matt has created a new show called The Simpsons. Have you heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was early enough that you could say that. You could, you know, <laughs> you weren't quite sure if the person you, you were talking to knew the show or knew what you were talking about. It was when Fox um, was, it was when Fox was still a fourth network brand new and nothing was sticking you know the adventures of beans baxter i remember was a fox show this is well before herman's head uh, you know i mean mm-hmm. those are some of the early fox shows that immediately come to mind there was one uh was it wolfen or man like there was you know another kind of werewolf show on fox just crazy stuff and and of course as we all know the simpsons started as interstitial animation on uh the tracy ullman sketch show and that's where they were kind right. of born and uh, and then of course uh, graduated with the Christmas special into uh, into the series. So no, I can totally understand, and I I certainly remember the days of Fox as a fledgling fourth network. Yeah, so she she asked me if I was interested, and I I jumped right on board. So for about six months, I did uh, you know just freelance jobs, and then eventually they were looking for somebody to help Millie. Uh, you know, do approvals because there were just so many licensees coming out of the woodwork that wanted to, to put out Simpsons merchandise. So they recruited me and I was trained to sort of do her job as well as draw the characters. So I sort of spent half of my work week doing drawings and then the other half I followed her around and I learned how to do the approvals and, you know, working with Fox executives and all that kind of stuff. Uh so that was, you know, that was really sort of my second introduction to Matt Crane because at that point I started having meetings with him. Um, we would discuss new projects. And from the beginning, there was always this desire to do Simpsons comic books uh, because he was getting offers from Marvel and uh, probably all the, the major companies wanted to license the Simpsons to do a comic book version. But Matt always sort of held fast and... You know, he thought, if I do comic books, I want to do them myself. I want to have my own company. And uh, so a couple of years later, Bongo was born. That's awesome. And uh, we started doing a whole Simpsons line of comics. And then eventually when Futurama was created, we folded that in. And, uh, yeah, so it was a long, um, you know, basically 25 years. Wow, yeah. Of uh, working with Matt, yeah. Jesus, man. Yeah, and, and honestly, one of those great accidental genius uh, moves because a, a corporation doesn't realize what they have, kind of in the same way back in the uh, 40s when Bob Kane and his father were able to go to you know National Comics back then and say, hey, can we just have a piece of the licensing and... Uh, you know, and just just a little bit, five percent, two percent, whatever it was, and Matt got the same deal in terms of Bongo as a publishing house, and and you correct me because you were there early enough. 
But, um, yeah, I mean, Bongo, not only, and we'll get into the comics, but also, am I right, like the calendars and, uh, every, you know, like you said, all the different licensing opportunities and stuff, then all funneled through Bongo, correct? Uh, well, all the publishing did. Okay. Um, the, deal that Mac, the deal that Matt got was um, he retained all the publishing rights. And, you know, it was early enough, uh, you know, it was the mid-80s with the Tracy Ullman show when he made that deal. And nobody ever dreamed that it would become, <laughs> you know, even even a half-hour series, much sure. less, you know, just a, an international sensation. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, so his lawyer was able to make this deal uh, because she argued, well, look, he's a cartoonist. And he might want to do his own comic version of The Simpsons. And they said, oh, yeah, okay, fine. You know, so they, they gave him that deal. Um, you know, 10 years earlier, they had given George Lucas all the merchandise rights to Star Wars. Even better example, absolutely. And, yeah. And, and they never made that deal again because they realized, <laughs> oh, crap, we gave away, you know, millions of dollars. Um but somehow they didn't learn that lesson. So when, you know, when they were dealing with Matt and he said he wanted publishing rights, they said, okay, fine. So, so Matt doesn't, he doesn't have the merchandise rights. Um, he still gets a healthy cut of, you know, anything that comes from merchandise, but, um, with Bongo or with, you know, what became Bongo, he was able to, um, basically do any kind of book, uh, comic magazine or calendar. Those are the things that fall into the, uh, publishing category. Okay. Um, so we were able to do bongo completely separate from Fox. We didn't have to get approvals. We didn't have to run anything past anybody. Um, so that was sort of the beauty of bongo and also sort of, I think the, you know, the, uh, untold story because a lot of people assume that any, any comic book version of a TV show or a movie is just licensed. And it's, it's sort of like a, um, you know, it's somebody else doing it. It's, it's not, it's not the real deal. It's, yes. It's, it's sort of an, an inferior version. Yep. Um, but, but with the Simpsons comics, the publisher was Matt Groening, you know, so it was closer really to a creator owned comic book than it was to a licensed comic book. And he was doing this before even Image and stuff, and he he was part of that wave of, I think, creator-owned that the Image guys also, uh, you know, in a different way were doing their thing. But as you say, it was a genuine representation of the Simpsons brand, later the Futurama brand. And you guys got, among you know, not only yourself, but so many great artists and writers of comics, and I'll mention two names that people may not realize were incredibly great Simpsons comic book writers, and we can get in the artists as well, but Chuck Dixon and Gail Simone were two, I think, really good Bongo writers. Yeah. And Gail, uh, we actually gave her her first work in comics. That's amazing, and that's terrific. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, one of our uh, friends and frequent collaborators, Scott Shaw. Of course. Um uh, Scott was the one that discovered Gail because he was following her column on comic book resources. <laughs> and, and Scott, Scott kept telling us, Hey, you ought to check out Gail's work because it's really funny. You know, you should read her column. She'd be a great writer for Bongo. 
And at the same time, Scott was talking to Gail saying, Hey, you should go to Bongo and, you know, try to get work, you know, writing Simpson stories. You'd be really great. And, uh, and I've heard Gail tell the story, you know, she said, you know, I didn't have the confidence to, to do that. You know, I didn't think that that was even an option for me. I was a hairdresser and, um, I was doing this column, but I never dreamed that I'd be able to actually write comics. But, uh, through Scott's, constant pestering on both sides uh we eventually reached out to her and um i think he had beaten her down enough that she was open to the idea of trying it and uh she was fantastic she wrote the we had a simpsons newspaper strip for a while and she wrote that wow. and she was writing st- stories in uh, simpsons and bart simpson comics and um yeah, and then she, you know, she got a few other jobs and then landed some work at DC and then suddenly she was a superstar. <laughs> and also and we couldn't yeah. afford her anymore. <laughs> I understand. You know, you mentioned Scott Shaw and I know Scott's background, but for the listeners tell tell people who Scott Shaw is. Well, Scott Shaw is a fantastic cartoonist. He uh started as an underground cartoonist. Um but he, you know, he was interested in everything, science fiction and animated cartoons. And uh, one of his big passions is dinosaurs. And, the, you know, the combination of dinosaurs and, and cavemen and animation came together with the Flintstones. And uh, so Scott was always a huge Flintstones fan. He sort of became well-known drawing Simpsons or uh, Flintstones comics. And uh, worked for the ad agency that did all the Fruity Pebbles commercials. Yep. So he directed a ton of those. Um, but Scott, Scott's just into everything. You know, he's he's a very funny cartoonist, but he's probably best known for Hanna-Barbera, but also for creating Captain Carrot of course, and the yes. Amazing Zoo Crew. He co-created that with Roy Thomas for DC. And Scott and I got to work on a sort of a Captain Carrot revival miniseries together. Um, number of years back, and uh, and he's also uh, since you're you're based in Chicago, um, he's also a big fan of Spanguli. I did, uh, which is based there, yes, and uh, designed designed a button. He and Alex Ross, who you mentioned earlier, both designed these buttons for Spanguli that you can get on his website. <laughs> Rich Coe Spanguli, a great guy. He's been on the podcast. I uh, I moderated his uh, panel at C two E two this year, the Chicago convention, and uh, oh cool, absolutely. And seriously, as a lifelong Spanguli fan, because he goes back in Chicago television to the late seventies, and of course there was the he wrote for uh, the first Spanguli as well prior to that. But it has been so much fun to see uh, not only comic book people and 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 fans across the country. But comedy professionals like go up to Svanguli and shake his hand, and uh, and now of course because of the morning I'm fuzzy. But Joel Joel Hodgson from Mystery Science Theater 3000, uh, I, I shot a video interview with Rich Svanguli, and right before we started shooting, he had to come up and shake his hand, and he's like, "Thank you, man. You obviously were an inspiration to Mystery Science Theater, and just give it up to him." And Rich is this great guy, you know, in his in his late 60s now or mid 60s. And it's just great to see the the recognition that that he's gotten. So it doesn't surprise me that that Scott's a fan, and I know Alex is, of course, growing up here as well. But yeah, Scott uh, Scott Scott's amazing, and yeah, and it's and he has that kind of link 
between, as you say, working on those uh, Flintstone commercials to the old Hanna-Barbera days. And he's, you know, the, the oldest guy that, you know, can at least say, well, he worked with some of those voice people like Mel Blanc and the second Fred. I don't know if Alan Reed was around to do any of those initial uh, Flintstone cereal and vitamin commercials, but certainly the, the second Fred was, uh, and, and certainly Mel Blanc. So pretty cool stuff. Yeah, and uh, Scott worked at Hanna-Barbera for years on other shows. And uh, one of the things that blows me away is, you know, he worked with a lot of legendary animators, but uh, Tex Avery is one of the famous animators that Scott worked with. Oh, wow. I didn't realize um, Avery, you know, lived that long to be able to work with Scott. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's that just blows me away. Absolutely. You know, to, yeah. to be able to work with somebody that great. Um is really something that's cool now and and tell me some of the other artists at uh, at bongo that you worked with over the years did you draw uh, uh, comics yourself for bongo yeah that's how i started uh it's funny because i was i was never really a writer i didn't think of myself as a writer um i always imagined i would just be a comic book artist and or an illustrator of some sort and uh in in the pre-Bongo days, we did a magazine for a couple of years called Simpsons Illustrated, and it had a comic section in it. And so I drew the very first Simpsons comic, but it was uh, from a script by somebody else. Okay. And and it was the first time I had ever done a comic. You know, I, I was working as an illustrator, but I'd always dreamed of drawing comics. And uh, so this was my first one. It was a Krusty the Clown strip, you know, about an eight-panel comic strip. And I had such a blast that I called the editor and I asked if I could do another one. I said, you know, for the next issue, that I hope you'll consider me because I would just love to do another one of these. And he said, well, we're really under the gun trying to get the second issue out. And we actually want to have uh, a Simpsons comic in it, but we don't have anything written. So if you want to write something then you can draw it as well. And I said, okay. Uh, and I hung up the phone and I went, holy crap. I just committed to writing a comic strip. I have no idea how to do this. I don't even know how to type. Uh, <laughs> script. You know. <laughs> yeah. Or and just it, type in general. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I totally got in over my head, but I started thinking well, you know, maybe there's something funny that happened to me as a kid that I can turn into a story. And that's what I did. I went back to my childhood and I just thought of, you know, just weird, funny things that happened to me. And I started writing stories based on that. And I just, you know, turned me into Bart and turned my dad into Homer. And, um, you know, of course, my dad was nothing like Homer. So I had to, you know, <laughs> I had to do some you know, reimagining, but, uh, uh, that's how it started. And, uh, you know, I turned in my first script and they liked it. And I remember Matt rewrote the punchline, but otherwise he thought it was fine. <laughs> and, uh, so from that point on, I, I was writing comics, you know, so yeah, I was writing and drawing, uh, both almost from the beginning. So at first there's Simpsons comics and Bart Simpson comics. And then, Bongo really got inventive, and we had, you know, I mean, just little side things like Radioactive Man, and Radioactive Man actually had an ongoing comic that lasted for, it seems, several years, correct? 
Yeah, the initial Radioactive Man was a six-issue miniseries. Um, so it was intended to be limited, sure. but then we brought it back a few years later as a regular ongoing series. And and then the, the you know, just like the show, Halloween specials would happen, and there would be, I mean, didn't Gene Colan, ultimately, didn't he do a Halloween special for you guys? Yeah, we had, uh, oh man, it was, it, that was the most fun project we did every year because the first couple of years of uh, the Trias of Horror comic, we played it pretty straight. So it was just sort of an imitation of the TV show. Uh, it was done with regular writers, regular Simpsons writers and regular Simpsons artists. And then about, the, I think about the fourth issue, third or fourth issue, I was at a comic convention, I think San Diego Comic-Con, and I ran into Jeff Darrow. Love Jeff Darrow, and another Chicagoan. Go on. So we... Yeah, so we started talking about uh, The Simpsons, and he told me what a fan he was, and I said, well, hey, would you ever like to do something for the magazine, maybe like something for the Halloween issue? And he said, oh, man, I would love that. Send me send me some model sheets. And so I went back, and I, I gathered a bunch of model sheets, and because Jeff had worked in animation, so he was used to working for models. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought, you know, Jeff... I think fans of your work are going to want to see you do you, you know? Sure. Uh, they're not going to want to see you, you know, like trying to force yourself into the Simpsons style. Um, and he was going to do a two page pinup. So it wasn't taking up a lot of real estate. And I figured, you know, if it's, if it's really weird and off model, um, it's only two pages. So I'm probably not going to get into any trouble on this. And, this is, you know, this is back when, you know, we were trying very hard to make the uh, the comic book look as much like the TV show as possible. Sure. Um, so, you know, we were very focused on staying on model. And, um, so that was my mindset. But I thought, you know what, I, I'm going to risk maybe getting into a little bit of trouble and just sort of let Jeff do his own thing. And he ended up doing this two-page scene um, like looking down on downtown Springfield where the uh, Rogelian aliens have, have invaded. <laughs> Kang and Kodos. Um, you know, <laughs> Kang, Kang and Kodos. And so there's like a whole bunch of Kang and Kodos type aliens and flying saucers. And there's just mayhem and destruction and chaos. And um, he really, I mean, it, it, it does look like Jeff Darrow, but he also stayed pretty faithful to the style of the Simpsons. And it was, you know, Matt looked at it and Matt thought it was fantastic. And that sort of opened the door. So from that point on with Trios of Horror, we started inviting, uh, you know, just the who's who of comics to come and do their version of The Simpsons. And the only rules that Matt had, he said, just make sure they still have the bulgy eyes and the overbite. <laughs> and beyond that, beyond that, they can just do their own style and, and have fun. So, yeah, we had, uh, gosh, we had Gene Colan, Dan DiCarlo, Bernie Wrightson, Al Williamson, wow. um, Sergio Aragonis. Of course, wow. Uh, Scott Shaw, um, Jill Thompson. Terrific, absolutely. Hillary, um, Hillary Barta, right? Hillary, yeah. And, uh, and Hillary became one of our regular artists. Absolutely. Um, Andrew Peepoy, another regular artist for you guys? Right. 
and Andrew uh, collaborated with me on the Yellow Submarine to bring that back. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's fantastic. Andrew's another Chicago guy. Yeah, and a friend of the show. So that's yeah, awesome. Andrew. Yeah, Andrew. Andrew uh, inked about half of the book, I think. Wow, excellent. Very, very cool. Holy cow. Yeah. Excellent. No, you know, um, but yeah, please continue. Oh, I just I'm just trying. I'm grasping, trying to think of the names of the amazing people that we worked with over the years. Bill but, Ray, right? Um, uh, Bill, no, Bill never did uh, a Simpsons job with oh, us. Oh, okay, okay. Chuck, I know um, I, 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 from a writing standpoint, as you're trying to think of names, uh, I always, uh, you know, I, Chuck Dixon can write any genre, and I think he proved it with the work that he did for Simpsons comics because one of one of my favorite things that he did was an Abe Simpson World War II fighting hellfish story. And I and I oh, yeah. and, and just again that's the thing it's like you know the, back back then it, I don't even know how many episodes they spent with Abe you know in his World War Two days but that was just such a great idea and it was very Sergeant Rock as it should have been and uh, you know uh, Burns uh, being one of his uh, you know men in his uh, unit and everything kind of messing things up but that's the thing he he managed to capture the the flavor of the show as many of the writers did and artists. And and as you say, especially when it, when it comes to the artists and stuff, still bring their style. And it, and and yeah, these things were just. It, it, that's the thing. I think Bongo just evolved into beyond giving us great straight up Simpsons and Futurama stories and stuff. All these great experimental comics as well. Yeah, that was that was really the I think the biggest joy of all my years working on the Simpsons was just letting. Like I'd meet people at conventions and they would just start, you know, pontificating on the Simpsons and, you know, they, these, these legendary comic artists who are known for, you know, much more serious stories, um, would just suddenly become fanboys and, you know, talking about how much they love this episode or that episode. And I would invite them to do a, a treehouse story and I never got turned down. Like nobody ever said, Oh, I don't have time for that. Um, you know, or I'm not, you know, I, you know, I do more lofty series <laughs> <laughs> comics, you know, I can't lower myself to do the Simpsons, you know, to do a mere animated television, uh, rip off. Uh, but they were always eager and enthusiastic and it was so much fun to just let them, you know, kind of play with our toys and have fun. Um, I remember Gene Colan, um, he wasn't as uh, familiar with the show as a, as a lot of younger artists were, mm-hmm. um, but but he was you know he was a fan. He knew about it. He'd seen some episodes, and you know he thought it was great, and he was eager to do it. Um, but I remember he he called me up and he said, "Do you have any figures like uh, 3D action figures or, or statues of The Simpsons?" And I said, "Well, yeah. There's a you know there's a new." toy line out of uh action figures um he said oh great can you can you just send me like all the characters that are in this story which story by the way was written by marv wolfman awesome um and it and it was a tomb of dracula uh homage yes indeed so it was it was gene and marv lampooning their original (laughs) creation uh which that was uh that was that blew my mind. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
so anyway, he he said, "Can you send me these action figures? You know, just send me one for each of the characters that are in the script." And luckily, they had already come out with figures for most of the characters that were in the story that Marv wrote. Uh, so I sent this box of action figures, and he he said he said I like to light them. I like I put them under a, a light, and I you know so I can get all the shadows and everything, wow. and I photograph them. Wow! And so he he did that, and then he sent me back the action figures. <laughs> But all of the all of the drawings in his stories are based on those action figures with this real dramatic lighting on, so he could see how they worked in 3D and got you know get all the shadows and everything right. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And then again, again, uh, Colin uh, staying consistent with his style, but also staying on model at the same time. No, I remember reading uh, the Tomb of Dracula parody. It was fantastic. And uh, yeah, that's. I, I can imagine you all being comic book fans, just being out of your minds with, I can't believe we get to work with these people. And and again, the, the quality was always there. And that's why it was so heartbreaking to hear just a few weeks ago that Bongo's wrapping up and everything. And, um, you know, I know you've been away from the company for a while, but I don't know if you know anything in terms of how come, you know, why the decision happened. Well, I I know that they're uh, I don't know much, but um, I do know that they've said they're not shutting down Bongo. Okay. Um, so they are they are still going to be publishing some things. They're just not doing the Simpsons or Futurama comics anymore. Okay. Um, so I think they're still doing some book projects and probably the calendars, and um, and they're probably waiting to see what's going to happen with Matt's new show, Disenchantment. Yes. The new Netflix show, right? Yeah. Haven't seen it yet. Have you watched it yet? No, I worked on it for a year before uh, getting the Mad job. Oh, wow. Mad Magazine job. Um, so I, you know, I was I was at the beginning and designed and co-designed some of the characters and um, worked on art direction, basically. Um, and so I saw, before I left, I saw some animatics and some early test footage, but I've never, I haven't actually seen an episode yet. I got to sit down and watch it. I know it's already on Netflix now. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. But, uh, no, that's cool. And I don't, you know, I don't want to press you for time, Bill. Do you have a little time to talk Futurama as well? And, and, but also if you get a, sure. Yeah. Okay, great. I appreciate that. I've got, I've got a few minutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, dude, honestly, as art director of Futurama, great job. I love that series. I'm so glad that it found new life. Um, and in, in the same way that family guy did. And also while it was running, it used to drive me nuts when Fox had it at, uh, in the, in, in the central area. Well, I guess for the coast, it was the seven o'clock hour. And in, uh, in, in the middle of uh, the country, it was six o'clock and we'd always get screwed right. by the late football games. We now join Futurama yep. in progress. And it's like, Hey, what the hell are you doing? Show the whole goddamn yeah. episode, man. This is just as important as the X-Files as far as I'm concerned. And and so it was <laughs> great to see in reruns, finally, a bunch of episodes that we wouldn't get to see. And then uh, and then also, again, that it got new life with, uh, was it Comedy Central first that, uh, or was it Adult Swim that uh, gave you guys the first lease? Yeah, it was, a, it was a Cartoon Network, Adult Swim. Okay, okay. Uh, and, it, and that lasted... Uh... I don't know a couple of years, yeah, and then and then Comedy Central picked it up, and then they started coming out with these DVD 
uh, movies. Yes. They did four direct-to-DVD movies. And then uh, eventually that led to bringing the show back. Amazing, man. And I'm so glad because it really... I love that show. And I'm interested, it, like, it didn't seem like it was um, made to be in widescreen ratio. But that said, I really like those episodes where it seemed like little bits of business were, like, kind of scurrying around at the bottom of the screen and, and things like that. And it almost in an Easter egg sort of fashion. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, high, com- high concept comedy and any sci-fi fan would bust a gut at, you know, your references and things like that. But just everything about it was was just great. And I, I mean, I love The Simpsons, but uh, Futurama really just seemed like, okay, now we're going to do that same kind of storytelling, but in this sci-fi, futuristic way. And it's, I mean, being a Jetsons fan and stuff, this was a dream come true to go that much further and that much snarkier in a, in a great way. Yeah, I think, I think Matt was definitely influenced by the Jetsons. Um, he also referred to Futurama as a workplace comedy, sure, um, and that was the distinct the distinction he drew between The Simpsons, which he said you know is a family sitcom, um, but you know the Futurama was more like uh, the Mary Tyler Moore Show or <laughs> you're right, <laughs> uh, you know Cheers, Barney Miller. you know where it takes place at work, yeah, it's mostly adults, um, you know not very many kids running around, true. Um, <laughs> But getting back to what you're saying about the like the little extra stuff, Matt, from the very beginning of The Simpsons, he always talked about rewarding fans for paying attention. And he he was always pushing to get as much of that, you know, like those freeze frame gags, um, you know, things that you really don't notice unless you record the episode and then, you know, freeze frame it yep. and then, you know, see what that sign says in the background or see what that guy's doing. Uh, But Matt was all about that. Yeah. He was always trying to put as much of that into his shows as possible. Those kind of gags were always fantastic and uh, absolutely appreciated. I know by the audience and stuff. And again, uh, even more so with Futurama because they became more elaborate and appropriate for the future setting. It's no great, great series, man. And you know, were you with the entire run? Were you were you there through the, through the new iterations as well? No, uh, I was only there through the first four seasons, the original yeah. Fox seasons. Okay, um, I, I worked with Matt. He he sort of plucked me away from Bongo a couple of days a week to work on developing the show. Um, so I worked with him on just designing the initial cast and uh, getting the the pitch together. Uh, and then he went to Fox. I went back to, you know, regular full-time hours at Bongo. Um, and then once, once he sold the show to Fox, they put him in office space. You know, the, they set up a production office for him uh-huh. in, in a, um, a Fox building that was off the lot. And Matt said, look, I'd like to have Bongo with me. You know, my publishing company, I'd like to have them in the same space. So they made, he made that part of the deal. So when when they ramped up production for the pilot episode, um, we were all there together. And the way I ended up becoming art director is because I had done this preliminary work, um, you know, helping them develop the look of the characters initially. Um, the producers would come down to my office and they would say, "Hey, we're having a hard time with this 
character. Can you, you know, give us some designs on this or, you know, we need ray guns. Can you just design like a page full of ray guns or spaceships or, you know, so they kept coming down to me, down to my office and um, sort of getting free uh, work out of me. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to do my bongo job and, and, you know, I'm, I'm doing all this Futurama stuff and it got to where, I mean, I was having a blast doing it and enjoyed it and uh, everything like that, but it got to where it was sort of becoming a second job. So I went to one of the producers and I said, um, look, I, I'm not saying I don't want to do this. I, you know, I love it. I want to keep on doing it, but I sort of feel like, um, you know, it's going above and beyond what Matt's paying me for. So I'd like to get, uh, you know, an actual job on the show if I'm going to keep do- producing designs. And they said, Oh yeah, absolutely. Sorry. We didn't think of that earlier. Um, uh, you know, what, we'll, we'll put you on the staff and, uh, what do you think your title should be? And I said, you know, I'm thinking, I didn't think you got to pick that. I thought that was something they just handed to you, you know, so this is weird. They're asking me what I, you know, what my title on the show should be. And I said, I don't know, I guess character designer, because that's mostly what I do. And they said, Oh, well, we can't give you that. Somebody else already has that title. Uh, so how about art director? And I said, well, that sounds better than character designer. So <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, that's awesome. so that's how I became art director on the show, even though I wasn't, you know, really doing the job of art director. That was, that job was being done again by my friend, Millie, who, who was the one that first introduced me to Matt. Um, so she was a producer on the show, but she was, she was working with, the animation studio rough draft and she was, you know, doing approvals on all the designs. Um, but what happened was Millie, uh, had gotten married and, uh, got pregnant and went on maternity leave. And so they made, they, they basically gave her duties to me while she was out on maternity for several months. So, for a period of the show, I actually was doing the job of art director. So I was working with the animators and approving designs and making notes and changes and all that. Um, so I, you know, I feel like I got to fulfill the title eventually, but, you know, for the most part, I was, uh, you know, just sort of, a, um, you know, just a, a design machine, uh, for lack of a better word you know, whatever they needed in terms of design, whether it was uh, background elements or props or vehicles, characters, mostly characters. Um, that's what I did. So do you, any memorable characters that uh, you designed for those first four seasons? Um, one I remember was Violet. Or no, not Violet. Uh, what was her name? Was that Fry's she girlfriend? Was, yeah. No, it was the... Uh, Violet was one of the sewer mutants. Uh, it wasn't her. (laughs) It was, um, remember the, the old lady at the truck stop? Oh, the one that was, the one that was going to Nutley. (laughs) I can't, I can't think of her name right now. Um, that's fantastic. Anyway, she she was, she was one of the ones I uh, designed. (laughs) Um, I did a lot of the celebrity caricatures, you know, the heads in jars. Yeah. Um, did you did do, a lot of those. Did you do the Star Trek uh, people? 
did some of them, yeah. Excellent. Fantastic. Another classic. And, you know, always good to see Al Gore. And I know Al Gore's daughter worked on the show, correct? She did. Kristen, yeah. That's fantastic. Seriously, um, that, was always, that was always great. And again, I think truly humanized Al Gore to, a, to the general audience in a, in a way that it didn't come through on his political speaking and everything. So it's like, oh, that's yeah. cool. Al Gore's funny. That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, he was actually one of the ones I designed. Al, That's Alex, excellent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I liked when, I forget which episode, where they go to battle, and Al Gore's head has laser guns and stuff, and it was like, all right, here we go. <laughs> yeah. That show was so much fun. Good I, Lord, yes. You know, when it got canceled initially, everybody was heartbroken, and so we were so overjoyed and excited when uh, we got to do it again. And, like, like I said, I, I wasn't really involved in the um, revival of it other than to do promotional artwork. And, okay. uh, you know, we were still doing the comic books, you know, doing the Futurama comic book at that point. Um, but we were we were still all part of the family. You know, that was the great thing about uh, Bongo in relation to Futurama is um, because we worked together in the same building, we all knew each other. You know, we knew the writing staff. Uh, Patrick Verone, one of the main writers, wrote a bunch of Simpsons comics for us. And uh, so we, you know, they still kept us involved even when they brought the show back and didn't have the budget to um, to bring me back as art director. Um, they, you know, I was still able to, to stay involved doing video uh, box designs and posters and things like that. That's cool. And, you know, I wondered if, as you mentioned, when you were talking about Gene Cohen getting the figures, I assume that Bongo designed all the packaging for the action figures. Um, we no, we actually didn't. Uh, oh, the, surprising! The um, yeah, the uh, uh, I can't remember. I think it was more Action Collectibles who did the Futurama action figures, and um, I'm trying to think of the name of the company that did the Simpsons ones. But uh, usually companies have their own designers, and so they'll create designs, and then, you know, they get submitted for approval. Um, and when I was doing that for Fox, you know, I was involved in package design at that point, but not not actually doing the initial design, more in the realm right. of making changes and, and, and improvements, yeah. I got you. Okay. Well, God, man, honestly, uh, both your involvement in Bongo and Futurama, uh, a, a great... Uh, Great stuff to have on the resume, and again, the proof is in the work. It was uh, it, truly a great show, and that's why it deserved to come back. And, uh, yeah, so even uh, those first four seasons, man, that was crucial. Now, you said real fast uh, regarding uh, the Netflix – or first of all, you said Futurama is a work environment show, Simpsons is a family show. For the Netflix show, how, how would uh, you guys describe that as far as a, uh, you know, a setting or a genre? I mean, I know it's a fantasy show, right? It's a kind of a fairy yeah. tale uh, parody. I think it's closer to a workplace comedy okay. um, than than it is a, a family sitcom. Cool. Um, so it's a little closer to Futurama in that respect, but, but it's not. I mean, it's really different. It's more uh, of a quest. Um, one of the main differences with Disenchantment is that there's an ongoing story. So even though you have episodes that have a beginning, middle, and end – there's a thread running through um, that makes you want to go to the next episode to see what happens next to these sure. characters. 
so you know in that respect it's it's a lot more like a lot of modern tv shows um built for binge watching yeah exactly yeah so yeah and, and very much like the the futurama movies as well that they were kind yeah. of you know four part kind of same story the thread following through and everything that's excellent man and again uh, uh, knowing knowing the minds behind uh, the Simpsons and Futurama, I'm, I uh, it it makes me want to carve out a little time and uh, speed through uh, Disenchantment. So that's that's fantastic. Hey man, um, I and I know now you're at Mad Magazine and and running things there, and uh, you know I, what what little you can say about that. I'm I, I'm sure that's got to be a, a dream come true as a as a humor comic book uh, person. Yeah, I mean it's. Uh... I can't really describe it as a dream come true because it's such an unattainable thing that I never dreamed, you know, something like this was something I would be doing. You know, it's, it's not like it was ever an ambition or a goal because, um, you know, I'm only the fifth person who's ever been in charge of Mad Magazine. Wow. Uh, yeah. And in its 66 year history. So, you know, it's one of those jobs that you just never think is something that you could do. So you don't really dream about it. <laughs> I understand. I it understand. just, it just seems so unattainable. So, um, but yeah, in, 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 I mean, in respect to, um, just being a dream job. Yes. It's, uh, you know, to get to work with Sergio Aragonis and, uh, Dick Bartolo and, uh, Al Jaffe, you know, my God, Al Jaffe, 97 years old and still, doing the fold in yes. in every issue. Yes. And uh, so to get to work with these legends and also discover new talent, you know, the next generation of mad artists and writers, um, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to describe really. I mean, I sort of find myself at, at a loss for words just because it's, um, you know, mad's an institution and, you know, to, to get to, um, you know, steer it into the future and, uh, you know, be the vehicle that hopefully inspires the comedians of, and you know, the comedians and comedy writers of the next generation. Um, you know, the, the way I've described mad is it's like a Fabergé egg full of sit, silly putty. <laughs> and, and my, my job is to get the silly putty out of the egg without breaking it. Understood. Hey man, I know the uh, yeah I know the pedigree of Mad Magazine because again younger listeners may not realize that certainly in Mad's prime of the the fifties sixties and even the seventies um, it was one of the hip magazines and like you said comedians Ernie Kovacs wrote for Mad Magazine uh, you know great comics of the day it would be like if you know John Stewart were writing for Mad Magazine while he was doing the Daily Show and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, you had, I mean, Will Elder and, and, and Kurtzman and, uh, all those wonderful, uh, you know, fifties guys. And again, to still have the great Al Jaffe and, and, uh, Eric Onis and Di Bartolo. It's great that they are still part of the magazine, but also, uh, and for a future conversation would really like to pick your brain in terms of, you know, reestablishing Mad's uh, brand. I mean, again, the television shows have been great. I thought Kevin Shinnick did a great job with the animated series. And uh, and I also, of course, the the uh, the sketch comedy show of Mad TV. The brand has always been there, 
but the magazine, yeah. you know, yeah, I, 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 that's an interesting challenge. And uh, truly, I, I know it's in great hands with you. So, uh, yeah, for a future conversation. I imagine there'll be a presentation at uh, New York Comic Con coming up. Yeah, we'll be doing a mad panel, and uh, we'll have uh, some of the local uh, mad freelancers and a couple of staff members, and uh, I'm sure mayhem will ensue. I look forward to it. That's excellent. I've had the pleasure of <laughs> talking to uh, Jaffe and uh, and Sergio Aragonis as well, and yeah, they're legends. And I really uh, eventually would love to talk to DiBartolo as well, because again, another great comedy mind. Uh, both in uh, in television and Mad Magazine, so uh, yeah. I, uh, again, it's it's got to be exhilarating, and I'm I uh, I hope it's fun, and also yeah, I'm sure it's it's an interesting challenge. So I uh, I wish you luck for that, and again, I hope uh, we'll have a, a future conversation. But the point of today, yeah, I look forward to that. Oh, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And again, uh, Yellow Submarine coming out uh, next Wednesday. This coming Wednesday, as we drop this episode uh, next week. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic, and well done, Bill Morrison. Excellent job, and uh, like I said, we'll, hopefully we'll talk about Matt in the future and also uh, uh, get into uh, your Eisner uh, emceeing as well. You always do a great job every year. I wasn't there this year. Oh, thank you. But, but, <laughs> but last, year, last year was a, an entertaining show, and I'm sure I haven't had a chance to sit down and either watch the video or uh, my buddy Jamie Covell always manages to get the audio of the Eisners and stuff, and uh, always great presentations and... Uh, very fun stuff. So uh, keep up the great work, Bill Morrison. It's been a it's been a pleasure talking to you this morning. It's been a blast. Thank you, man. I, I appreciate it, and I look forward to talking to you soon. That's Bill Morrison. Yellow Submarine from Titan is already out, and it's an instant classic. I loved it. I highly recommend it. Also, Disenchantment, the Netflix Matt Groening series, now running on Netflix. Of course, Futurama reruns on the Sci-Fi Channel all weekend long. In fact, I think I'll be watching it tonight while I'm uh, recording this. And then, uh, of course, The Simpsons on FXX, uh, about five days a week in giant marathon chunks. I'm sure it's uh, syndicated by you as well on local stations. But uh, there's tons of ways. And Mad Magazine. Bill Morrison, now the editor-in-chief of Mad Magazine. I can't wait for his panel at New York Comic Con and uh, see exactly what he and uh, the rest of the cast of idiots have planned for the new Mad. Thanks for listening to Word Balloon today. I hope you enjoyed it. It was brought to you again by the League of Word Balloon listeners. If you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon, do you think the level of conversation and content that I provide every month is it worth the price of a comic book to you? Is it worth a dollar a month to you? If it is, and you've got the money, because I know times are tough, and uh, don't get any uh, easier. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon and help me out, I really appreciate it. You can go to wordballoon.com, click on the Patreon ad there, or go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. Thanks a lot, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at instocktrades.com. I mentioned some of the great uh, InStock Trade product that is there with Bill Morrison's name on it. Again, from Titan, Yellow Submarine, you can buy it from InStock Trades at 25% off the cover price. It's $22.49. You can also get his Dark Horse book, Dead Vengeance, that he wrote and drew himself. Looks pretty cool. 42% off, $11.59. Or he's part of Creepy Comics Trade Paperback Volume 1. 42% off, $11.59. Now, that's just the Bill Morrison product that's in in-stock trades. You'll find your favorite artists and your favorite writers at great prices. Check it out for yourself. If your orders are $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping from my good friends at InStockTrades.com. 
Thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. Thank you again, League of Word Balloon listeners. Uh, more Word Balloon 101 coming up in the days and weeks ahead. We still got a lot of content to get through that fits in this back-to-school uh, format that I've decided to temporarily adopt uh, for these uh, episodes. Of course, a lot more content coming from Terrificon, uh, a convention that I just did two weekends ago. Great panels, really great discussions. I've started posting some video clips. The guys that actually shot the video are starting to put stuff up. I will have links at wordballoon.com for the video versions of some of these conversations. But, geez, Roy Thomas, Jim Starlin, Denny O'Neill, Mike Barr, Afua Richardson, Christopher Priest, Don McGregor. Um, I'm trying to think. My buddy Tim Seeley, my buddy Pete Tomasi, C.B. Sabolsky. You just heard him on uh, the last episode of Word Balloon. Charles Soule and Nick Spencer. Tremendous conversations from Terrificon. So glad to have moderated eight amazing panels, including an incredible conversation about the DC romance comics of the 1960s. I didn't get to moderate it, but I got to watch it and record it. Our buddy Paul Kupperberg did an excellent job interviewing Barbara Freelander. And in their case, and in Roy Thomas and Jim Starlin's case, and many others, Denny O'Neill, very, very candid about uh, the DC offices and the Marvel offices of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Really interesting stuff. Juicy stuff. I can't wait to share it with you. That's why uh, the, the Word Balloon episodes are coming out so fast and furious uh, these days following Terrificon. Had a great time. I thank uh, the guys that brought me there, uh, Mitch Halleck and uh, the whole Terrificon organization, John Cimino from providing Roy Thomas access both before the con and during the con, and was sweet enough to uh, have me be uh, the moderator for not only Roy's uh, Cosmic panel, but also the Psychology of Wolverine, including Roy and Dr. Susanna Flores. That's coming up in a few days. Really good stuff uh, as we lead up to uh, the last gasp of summer. I know it technically ends in September 21st, but really... Uh, Memorial Day, or I should say Labor Day weekend. i got to keep my summer events straight. But yeah, we're heading into the pre-Labor Day week. Uh, lots of great word balloon stuff for your Labor Day weekend fun. So uh, don't worry. Lots of good conversation to uh, keep you safe and entertained while you're driving or traveling to whatever Labor Day destinations you have planned. So uh, keep your eyes posted at wordballoon.com and on social media. I'm at John Word Balloon on Twitter and under my name, John Suntress, at Facebook and the Word Balloon Network. Watch for the new episodes. And uh, thanks. Any email questions, john at wordballoon.com. Talk to you next time. School's out. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2018.